Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hey everyone, the Christmas season is here. This time of carols, wrapping paper, twinkling lights, sugar cookies, and stories in the dark of winter. I really love this season, and every year the wonder of it, the goodness, just gets deeper. The thunder of angels and the whispered rumors of men. Eternal glory wrapped in human frailty. Ancient mystery entwined with modern merriment. And the awesome paradox of the incarnation. I have not done a very good job in this podcast of timing fairy tales with specific seasons of the year, and today's story is no exception, except maybe thematically. There is a quietness, a melancholy, a sense of longing in today's story that kind of matches the idea of Advent, the season of waiting. This tale is also a little off-brand for this podcast because it's not actually a fairy tale. Fairy tales by nature have happy endings, and this story does not. But I wanted to talk about this story because it has this tragic, haunting beauty that I find really fascinating. And I wanted to look at how a Christian artist might approach retelling a tragedy. So today's folktale is called The Selkie Wife. As usual, I'll read my own iteration of the folktale out loud, and then I'll talk about the tale as a tragedy and a little bit about ocean or sea imagery in a scriptural context. The Selkie Wife. On the night of the full moon, a fisherman walked home along the shore. He saw a group of people dancing in the sand, but they ran away when he approached. They threw dark shapes over themselves as they vanished into the waves. Tucked in the curve of a rock, he found a soft seal skin. He took and folded it to carry home with him. As he stepped onto the road, a beautiful girl followed him, crying, begging him to give her back her skin. She was a Selkie, one of the sea people, who could cast their seal skins to walk ashore as humans. She could not resume her seal shape and return to her people without her skin. No, said the fisherman, I want to marry you. Because he had her seal skin, the girl could not refuse, so she went home with him as his wife. They lived together for years. She learned the strange ways of life on land, baking bread, mending shirts, and thatching roofs, and bore him many children. She sang lovely, lonely songs over the children's cradles as they slept. One day, the youngest son came to his mother. Mother, why does father keep an old coat upstairs in a chest? He asked. The mother bid her son to go and play, and going upstairs, found indeed that it was her lost sealskin hidden in the chest. The fisherman had taken the other children out on his boat with him. As they rowed in in the gloaming, they saw a seal with great sad eyes lingering near the boat, watching them until a mist fell and it vanished. When they came near the house, the youngest son ran to them, crying. The fisherman realized that his wife had found her sealskin and returned to the sea. The selkie never returned. Her children would see a seal with great sad eyes watching them as they fished. It lingered as they pulled in nets sagging with abundant catches, but it never approached, never came close enough to touch.
I don't remember when I first heard this tale. It was most likely in the 1994 film The Secret of Roan Enish, which I watched when I was little, and then I watched it again in preparation for this episode. It's beautiful. It's very sweet, very deep, and very conscious of Irish history and lore. The Selkie wife's story is told in the midst of the movie as part of the family's history, and it really haunted me. I'm very much a happy ending person, so the fact that this sad story with its strange and somewhat unfinished ending made me curious, and that's why I wanted to discuss it on the podcast. What about this story is beautiful? What about it is true, and why is it haunting? First, I thought I'd look into a little bit of a Christian perspective on literary tragedy. In the season one finale, I talked about happy endings in the light of scripture. To review that a little bit, the Bible's story of the world is a comedy in the sense that it has a happy ending. A tragedy with a sad ending does not reflect the shape of all reality, but a tragedy is still a very valuable literary form because it testifies to the truths of suffering, sin, and evil in a very particular way. I went through a couple of famous tragedies to to get a sense again of what makes a tragedy and what makes a good tragedy. This was a very brief glance, and uh, as any scholar of literature knows, it's, it's bad practice to try to distill a story down to a single point, a single moral point, or a single theme but I'm just looking at some similarities across the genre. I looked at Sophocles' plays Oedipus Rex and Antigone, The Tragedy of Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, and Macbeth by William Shakespeare. So here are some similarities I found. Number one, the presence of sin without repentance or grace. Especially in Oedipus Rex and Antigone, which are part of the classical Greek tradition, the sins of murder and other crimes occur without an answering grace. And justice is complicated. It's kind of fair, but justice in those plays doesn't always feel completely fair. Dr. Faustus and Macbeth never repent of their sins, or rather Dr. Faustus does, but it's way too late. And Othello definitely repents too late in his life. He brings his own judgment. Romeo and Juliet's a little different. Uh, The chorus and conclusion of their play really make them sacrificial victims of their family's hatred. So very complicated as a theme, but just the idea of sin without the path of, of grace and redemption that would end in a happy ending. There's also this dialogue between fate and providence, uh, using providence in the Christian sense, the providence uh, being the providing of a just and good God. The Greek tragedies are definitely guided by the cruel hand of fate. The Christian plays, in general, seem more aligned with the Christian vision, that the sad ending is the consequence of sin, either directly on the sinner or on innocent victims. And sometimes there seems to be kind of a mix. That's the kind of thing you could write a whole PhD about. Romeo and Juliet have a series of misfortunes that drive them apart. And there's definitely the mention of fickle fortune in that play, which is a pagan-ish concept. So a little complicated there. But definitely raising the question of cold fate versus a loving and just providence. Third, a clash of opposing forces. A lot of these tragedies will have a this versus that. And you have to choose one of the things, and that choice brings the downfall. The will of the gods versus the will of man. Jealous love versus caring love. Romantic love versus familial loyalty. Power versus duty. And it doesn't always seem that the tragedy is arguing that the protagonist made the wrong choice. Sometimes it's just that the right choice led to their death. 
because that is a key of many tragedies that people people die in the end. So how does this relate to the sulky wife folktale? And how might a Christian artist think about these things if they're tackling a retelling? So I'll apply those three main themes to that tale. Sin without redemption or grace. To begin with the obvious, enforcing the sulky to become his wife by stealing her skin, the fisherman sins against her. This is a form of captivity. It's not a real or healthy marriage. I don't know that I need to, need to make a whole case for that. I think anyone listening is pretty much going to be on the same page about that, that forcing someone to marry you is a sin. Uh, but for the interest of just stating the obvious, um, I'll point to Ephesians 5, John 3, Mark 2, Revelation 21, and other passages that identify Christ as the bridegroom of the church. This metaphor of Christ and the church as bridegroom and bride is the archetypal perfect image that every good marriage should reflect. Christ the bridegroom is loving, protective, self-sacrificial to the point of death, tender, gentle, worthy of all authority and power. The point of submission, that very controversial concept in marriage, is that it is supposed to be willing and joyful. The wife submits to the husband of her own free will, and believers submit to the sovereignty of God by his election and our own free will. A forced marriage is an antitype or a distortion of the beautiful mystery of Christ and the church. There's another aspect of this antitype. The man's hold over the selkie is that he's taken her seal skin, he's, he's taken her clothing in a way, and her identity. When I read that, I thought about how Christ does the opposite. He clothes us in his imputed righteousness, and that's one metaphor we use for salvation and justification. I looked for the biblical reference for that image of Christ clothing us, and I found Revelation 19.8. It was granted her, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But then I wanted to make sure, I thought, I thought that analogy was used somewhere in the epistles. So I just did a, a quick word search for clothing, and I came across another theme I, made ad I might address later on the podcast about God clothing us straight from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were revealed as naked and God gave them animal skins. He gave them clothing. Uh, the demon-possessed man in Luke 8 and Mark 5, who was running around without clothes and naked and not in his right mind, and the Lord Jesus casts out the demons, and then the disciples come and find the man clothed and in his right mind at Jesus' feet. So there are a lot of images of God clothing us, uh, and that's, again, a whole other study I might do sometime. But yes, so part of the antitype of this forced marriage is that the man takes the selkie skin in contrast, in opposition to Christ clothing us and his righteousness. Second, the clash of opposing forces. This story happens between land and sea, human and selkie, man and wife. And the fact that the marriage is forced means that these opposing forces are never, never reconciled or, or unified. In the end, the selkie's departure makes a permanent split. Christ, quote, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, end quote. So that's the second part of Ephesians 2.14. Christ made a reconciliation and peace with his sacrifice. He, he brought us together with him, mercy and justice. And that's another contrast to the fisherman's action. Third, the question of fate versus providence. This is really interesting. And um, you could kind of look at the discovery of the seal skin as 
maybe an act of fate in a way, but it's also very consistent with the Christian idea of secrets being revealed and brought to light, and also of justice, that wrongs will be exposed and that the wicked will be called out. So considering all of that, if the images of this story represent an anti-type of the gospel, where does its beauty come from? I thought about this a lot, and I think I've identified three motifs or three kind of concepts here that have the ring of truth, and that's what gives this story its beautiful sadness. First, the theme of exile, a person taken from their home by force who is homesick and grieving. The theme of exile runs through scripture with the story of Joseph in Egypt, the nation of Israel in Egypt, and later in Babylon, Mary and Joseph and Jesus also uh, in Egypt, and believers on earth right now while we wait to go home to be with the Lord. My college had a writer's conference each year, and the theme one of the years was beauty in exile. This idea that we Christians now are like Israelites dwelling in Babylon, and our situation as described in Jeremiah 29, finding a parallel there, is that we're seeking to plant gardens and vineyards and seek the prosperity of this city as we wait to go to our true home. So I think that powerful and true theme is one of the things that gives this story its beauty exile, homesickness, and waiting. The return of the Selkie to the sea in the end actually does reflect part of the gospel, the captive going free and the exile going home. Second theme that makes this story beautiful, the motif of the strange stranger or the mystery guest. My Southern literature professor used to repeat a quote and I thought he said it came from Faulkner, but then I looked it up on Quote Investigator and it said it's from John Gardner. So whoever said it, the quote is, quote, there are only two plots in all of literature. One, a person goes on a journey. Two, a stranger comes to town." End quote. It's certainly oversimplified, but just think about how many stories have those two things, going on a journey, a stranger comes to town. Uh, just to look at the second one, this burst of curiosity, like Mr. Bingley showing up in Pride and Prejudice, or the man on the beach showing up in Ladies in Lavender sense of mystery, danger, maybe deception or illusion, like the music man showing up in his musical uh, as a con artist. An unexpected familiarity, the stranger turns out to be an old friend or a childhood sweetheart, or even a nemesis. But that sense of wonder you get when the unknown person becomes known, the unexpected or, in contrast, the, the arrival foretold. Scripturally, this is an echo of divine intervention, the Lord visiting his people Israel, and ultimately Christ, the promised one, who arrived, uh, the stranger, also foretold in prophecy, so it's a paradox, this joyful announcement we celebrate in the season of Christmas, but also a lot of secrecy and danger, the threat of Herod, the dragon of Revelation 12. So the theme of the exile, the captive going free, the exile going home, is a mini retelling of the gospel story. But I think it's the second aspect, that of the stranger, is where we find dissonance. Because the stranger becomes known, the Selkie makes a life on land, she becomes a wife and mother, but then she leaves at the end, she leaves her children. In the gospel, children and father are reunited. So this is why the story is a tragedy. It's not sad that the sulky wife leaves the fisherman. He deserves it. But what is sad is that the innocent children are left without a mother. And I think that's why it feels unfinished, because it's missing one of the ingredients of a happy ending, the reunion of family. Third, 
my third explanation um, why, for why I find this story beautiful. I had a friend in grad school who did a paper on mermaids, which was a great topic. She explored mermaids as creatures of a dual nature, and she argued that that dual nature reflects the nature of mankind as physical and spiritual beings. And this idea also applies metaphorically to selkies. They're creatures of two worlds, of land and sea. They're fully seals in the sea, they're fully humans on land. It's when a selkie's skin is stolen and they can't engage with half of their dual nature that the problems start. Humans have a dual nature, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, has a dual nature as both fully man and fully God. And there are a lot of heresies that spring up when people ignore or try to explain away half of the dual nature. Oh, he's only a man. Oh, he's only God. Or for human beings, oh, we're only flesh. Oh, we're only spirit. So I think it's a third true thing that this tale reflects, the picture of a dual nature, and maybe some of the problems that result when half of the duo is denied. In summary, I think this is why this tale is tragic and why it's beautiful. It captures the vision of the exile returning home and the stranger becoming known, as well as the paradox of a dual nature. But in the end, the mother leaving her children behind means that it's missing the final victory of a reunited family. I'm going to talk now about the image of the sea in scripture before wrapping up and talking about how a Christian artist could approach all of this in a retelling. The image of the sea in scripture. This is a fascinating and beautiful study that I've wanted to do for a while. I'll add a couple more resources that you can look at in the show notes because of course this is a huge study and I'm not enough of a scholar to give a thorough or broad overview. But I'll begin with my own word study in scripture. In the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we don't actually see God creating the sea. It just seems to be there, but he names it on the second day. God creates the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds on the fifth day in Genesis 1.21. We're reminded over and over that God made the whole earth and the seas. For example, in Nehemiah 9.6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. There are also plenty of descriptions of God controlling the seas and setting their boundaries. Job 38 has one of my favorite images ever, that of the doors of the sea. So Job 38, 8 through 11, this is part of a challenge God asks Job. This is the end of the book when God speaks out of the storm. And the question begins with a who in an earlier verse. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? The answer to this question, if it's not obvious, is the Lord God. I also really love Psalm 1815. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So God made the seas, he named them, he controls their limits and borders. He is sovereign over them just as much as the rest of all of creation. The sea has monsters in it. There's a lot of research on this and I'll just touch very briefly on it. Psalm 74, 13, you divided the sea by your might, you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. Isaiah 27, 1, 
In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 both have apocalyptic images of beasts rising from the sea. The Bible Project podcast has been doing a series on this. This is going through fall 2023, if you're listening later. And they've looked very closely at these sea monsters, and they can provide a lot more insight, a lot more background. So definitely go look at that if you're interested in dragons and sea monsters. I went and looked at the Lexham Bible Dictionary to help give me some context here. And I'll put that source in the show notes. The dictionary explains that when the word for sea is used in the Old Testament, it's the word yam, and it refers to, quote, the chaotic abyss that was the original state of the world prior to creation, end quote. The dictionary uses the term primordial a lot. I really love that word, primordial. And they reference ancient pagan myths of a storm god fighting a sea god. So archetypally, order fighting disorder. Some of what they call the rescue miracles of the Gospels make more sense in this context. When the Lord Jesus calms the wind and the waves in the boat, he's demonstrating his divinity, because controlling the sea of chaos is something that only Yahweh could do. The Lexham Bible Dictionary also points out that Jesus is walking on the water, quote, in which the rescue miracle is dominated by motifs of epiphany. He has fully entered the role of the Old Testament God, end quote. I love that idea of epiphany with the Lord Jesus coming, walking across the water. This portrays the sea as the realm of chaos and disorder, primordial and powerful, associated with dragons, beasts, and evil creatures, but in its power, always under the control of the Lord God. I had some trouble here in my research. I found these sources very helpful, but it is so hard for me to abandon mental pictures of the sea that I've gotten from picture books and movies like The Little Mermaid and Finding Nemo. The ocean is beautiful and free and exciting. What about whale songs and megafauna, coral reefs, luminous algae? What about all the cute things like seals and sea otters and baby sea turtles? I don't want to add to scripture. I want the lens of scripture to correct my faulty vision, the light of scripture to illuminate my darkness. But when I went back to the word study of scripture, I think that there's a paradox here, a both and rather than an either or. The sea as raging and chaotic and primordial, but it's still a part of God's creation. It's still full of wonders at the same time. There are a lot of passages which call for the whole earth to praise the Lord, and the sea is included in that call. 1 Chronicles 16, 31 through 32, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Psalm 104, 25, here is the sea great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. And of course, as you'll remember, in the book of Jonah, God sends one of the creatures of the deep, the great fish, to swallow his runaway prophet and then go and deliver him to the city where God sent him. What if it's both? What if we modern people who have airplanes to fly over it and big fancy boats to sail through it have forgotten or have trouble remembering how terrifying and chaotic the sea is, at least those of us who are not sailors? At the same time, it's beautiful and wondrous. And maybe it's more so when you remember its power. Maybe things like cute baby sea turtles are all the cuter when you remember that they came from this this awesome, chaotic, powerful place. All of it 
glorifies the sovereignty of God. Curiously, the sea will not last forever. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I don't fully know what this means. Again, this is a very big study, the sea in scripture. But I do know that there'll be no mourning in heaven. There'll be no loss. And we won't miss anything. Here, now, in this time of salvation history, we have the sea in all its chaos and all its beauty. We won't have it forever. How does all of this relate to the sulky life and maybe how you might retell it? Again, I struggled with this. I thought, well, maybe this Celtic folktale just has a different concept of ocean than the biblical image of the chaotic and raging sea. Selkies are supposed to be gentle creatures, and this selkie is a victim, and her return to the sea is a return home. So what do we do with all of this? Well, realistically, Celtic peoples who fished and sailed would not have been ignorant of the dangers of storms and waves any more than uh, the people of Israel. Maybe there's a way to incorporate that paradox into your story, the chaotic sea and the beautiful sea. The same sea that's the home of the gentle selkie is also the sea where dragons and storms and beasts rage. It's beautiful, it has cute things in it, it's also terrible and terrifying. And it's under the authority of a perfect God who sets the captives free, who clothes us in righteousness, who gives us hope in darkness and light in the shadow of death, and who makes us his sons and daughters and makes a home for us. In conclusion, how would a Christian artist deal with all of this in a retelling, examining this folktale in the light of scripture? Other artists will have their own imaginations, their own ways of going about this. So I'll just share some thoughts that may give you some ideas. First, I don't know that it makes sense to simply cut and paste an abruptly happy ending onto this tragedy. A tragedy has its own shape, and just changing the ending without changing the rest of the tale breaks that shape. I don't know that it makes sense for the wife to suddenly come back and be reunited and everything is happy again. If anything, the fisherman would need to repent and recognize that what he did was wrong. And if there's a repentance, and forgiveness and reconciliation, and someone did that successfully in a retelling, it'd be beautiful. I don't know if I would be able to pull that off. It'd be difficult. So that's something that you have to consider, that you don't, you don't just fix a tragedy by sticking on a happy ending. So how else could you go about this? You could retell this tragedy as a tragedy and ex simply expand and incarnate the details of the story and the world. More of the idea of the raging and wild sea, maybe. Build up the characters, you know, maybe a couple of subplots, something like that. I think that's very possible. But if you retell this story in its current shape, you'll have to ask where Christian hope comes in. Because of course the ending is really sad, the, the woman leaving her children. Where is eternal hope and how could you witness to it in that tragic shape? Other ways to go about this, some creative ones, not to spoil the movie too much, The Secret of Rhone Enish, but it tells this tragic tale as a part of the family's history. It weaves this story into another story that has a really beautiful pattern of reunion and homecoming. Another more recent movie, The Song of the Sea 2014, is animated also uses selkie imagery. It's not a straight retelling of this tale. It uses the idea of selkies, the lost mother, and shape changing to tell a whole new story. So that is something that you could do if you want to work with the selkie wife, you're attracted to its images. Keep its original shape and make it part of the past, part of the background, 
And then you can tell your own story and, and choose to have a happy ending in that new and bigger story. Other possibilities. This is also a tricky one, just as much as trying to give the tale a happy ending. What if you thought about taking some of these images, the raging sea, the man and the wife, the selkie skin, and inverting them so that instead of an anti-type of the gospel, they're a type. Instead of a kidnapping, a rescue. Instead of a theft of the selkie skin, some kind of gift. Instead of a forced marriage and an exile longing for home, a romance, a good, healthy romance and a homecoming, still using those concrete images. Again, it would be hard to do that, but I don't think it's impossible. And maybe just talking about that will give you some ideas. I'm going to close with Revelation 19, 6 through 8. I already quoted the, the last verse of this um, about being clothed in righteousness. But this, this passage feels like an answer to the beautiful unfinishedness and the wistful longing of the Selkie wife tale. Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Thanks for joining. I'm hoping to close the season with more of a Christmas episode. We'll see if that actually happens because time is running out. But no matter what, enjoy the season and bless the God who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm.